and welcome to another Transformation Podcast for Bristol's Colston Hall. I'm Harriet Robinson and it's lovely to have your company. Over the next couple of years, a multi-million pound makeover is taking place, turning this beautiful but tired old venue into a state-of-the-art, world-class music and education space. We've already met a bunch of brilliant people attached to this ambitious project, from acousticians and architects and from the chief exec to some awesome children. Throw in a world-renowned conductor, musicians, artists, writers, and you're getting the idea. We're covering a lot of ground. Here, we're looking at the lifeblood of this music hub, its artistic programme. And I'm going to find out just how the concerts keep on coming in spite of an enormous demolition project in full flow. We've got some plaster plaques, marble plaques, timber panelling. We had timber floor in the main hall that's listed. Stone balustrades that have been taken out. We've got leaded windows. We've got an old ticket office that had to be taken out. An old Victorian lift that was dismantled and will get used. The Holy Grail for any artistic director is for the audience to go not oh that's the artist I want to see but rather go I trust that venue what have they got on we're on the road to sort of getting that level of trust from audiences. I will be the first person in the queue the day that you reopen to hear whoever you've got playing. Please hurry up and finish the reefer. If a venue's lucky enough to be able to run its own artistic programme, it means the opportunities there not only to bring incredible music to the city, but also to nurture and develop talent defining the venue itself and potentially the region. Well, I'm in the Colston Hall foyer, actually in the glass room of the Colston Hall foyer with artistic director Todd Wills. Now, Todd, on the surface, seems like you have a really cool job. Can you tell me what uh, exactly an artistic director does? Because maybe I want your job. I mean, it sounds like you find the bands that you love and you put them on. Well, in a nutshell, that is kind of what we do. Yes, I'm quite lucky to have the job that I, that I do. So the role of the artistic director is to curate the programme, trying to create a sort of a broad spectrum of artists that kind of reflect the city that we're in. And, of course, we have a remit to look to develop artists as well. It's essentially curating what happens artistically within the building. So you haven't always had so much freedom when it comes to working with artists. What what changed and why? I've been here about seven years, and when I first started, it was essentially what we would call a receiving house. The old expression is four walls and a diary. So if somebody had something, we had a date available, they could do it. It didn't really matter what it was. And I know some people miss the wrestling, but that's, you know... Wrestling? We had wrestling, yeah. Every, I think it was on every Saturday. Do you not know about that? No. Oh, people want it back, but um, I'm... I kind of want it back. Oh, OK, well, <laughs> well, we'll see. Yes, we had, we had everything and anything here, but it just kind of, it meant that the programme, it wasn't terribly coherent. And so the idea when the trust formed was to try and bring the programme into something that was more coherent, that had a bit of a thread running through it, and that we weren't just throwing anything in there. I suppose, for want of a better phrase, being slightly more discerning. We do receive a lot of shows about half the shows that we do particularly in the main hall but then everything around that we curate ourselves and in some years it's a 50 50 split between what we book through national promoters and what we do ourselves which is a high percentage for a concert hall yeah why is that unusual for a concert hall to do that because it's risky 
when you've got a national promoter that wants to bring a big band to your place, they just hire it. So you make a little bit of money there, you're making money on the bar. It's very, very easy. But the holy grail for any artistic director is for the audience to go, not, oh, that's the artist I want to see, but rather go, I trust that venue, what have they got on? We're not there yet, but we're on the road to sort of getting that sort of level of trust from audiences. I know it's quite subtle, but there is some uh, fairly major demolition work happening at the moment (laughs) on site. What's happening with the artistic programme whilst this is happening? Because we do a lot of our own promotions, we wanted to continue. And we built a good relationship actually with lots of venues outside of here when we were running anyway, because obviously we only had the main hall and we had the lantern. So there's lots of opportunities missed in between so if we wanted to work with a band that was just starting out we wanted to put them in a much smaller venue and then hopefully they'd come to the lantern and then beyond that they might get to trinity next and maybe the main hall and so we've just kind of continued that really it's working with those external venues and there's fantastic venues all around bristol actually with great programs and it just felt right to to continue the relationships with the agents and with the artists and to work more with the other venues around bristol that we love What are you most looking forward to about the new venue? Okay, we'll have the cellar space, which means that we'll be able to work with an artist on their way up. And then we've got the flexibility in the lantern and then into the main house. So we can continue that sort of journey with an artist, but do it in-house. I think also we'll be able to work with emerging promoters because when we were open before, the lantern, although it's our smaller space, is still quite a big space and can be risky for a local promoter, you know, you could potentially lose a lot of money in a 350-capacity space. Whereas in the sellers, I hope that we'll build more relationships with those local promoters and help them along in their careers as well as the artists they're working with. Is there an example of someone that you've worked with that you, you've seen go to the next stage, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suppose the best example is Benjamin Clementine. So he came to us a few years ago. He was really fascinating as a musician and when we first met Mon I think we sold 110 tickets and then by the time we last played here which was the December before we closed he sold uh, something in the region of 1500 so that was an artist that we had stayed with and also supported in other ways when we had shows in with him and he had things like later with Jules Holland we'd make sure to move the show and we're very supportive with the agent we kept that relationship with him and I hope when we reopen of course we'll we'll continue that that's great I was at that gig and it was amazing the one in the main hall yeah yeah it was it was kind of teetering though wasn't it you slightly worried that it was all going to go horribly wrong at any moment the, quite theatrical the main, yeah yeah exactly I swear that you've seen Yes, you've seen me here before, before, and so don't tell. And I think it would be great to do something with him, actually, where he's working directly with a, a theatre maker. I think it'd be absolutely amazing. But yeah, it was a good show. Todd, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks. You've heard it before, before, and so don't you dare tell it. Don't you dare tell it otherwise No wonder why I'm Harriet Robinson and you're listening to the Transformation Podcast for Colston Hall.
You can join in the conversation on Twitter anytime using the hashtag TransformTheHall. We'd love to hear from you, of course. And for more information about the project, go to colstonhall.org slash TransformTheHall. Now, the artistic programme is one way this venue is able to control the quality of performances that are put on and, crucially, a means of supporting and developing artists from beginnings to big times. But there's still a long way to go before Colston Hall is able to fully implement its master plan, the main reason being that there isn't much of a venue here at the moment. This is all what? Oh my what? <laughs> oh my god. See the whole of the stage is gone now. What that was where the stage was. Yeah. Uh, so possibly the most exciting bit of the podcast series is happening for me today because this is demolition on a massive scale. I'm with Will Scriven, who's a project manager and is going to talk us through what's happening on site. Will, you're in charge of all of this. What made you want to get into demolition? Was it something you were doing as a child? Were you building Lego structures and then kind of loving taking them apart? No, not really. Um, I kind of fell into demolition when I left the Navy through a, a friend of a friend who was short-staffed and he asked me to help out and that's kind of how I got into the industry a long time ago. <laughs> and do you love it? Yeah, it presents an awful lot of challenges on every scale, really, especially with health and safety because it's, it's an high-risk environment high-risk industry but yeah it's enjoyable I like a challenge and our industry always throws you a challenge. Demolition isn't just about uh, dismantling is it so I know you've had to be extra careful with this job can you just tell me about some of the preservation aspects of it and the important heritage items? This is a grade two listed building so we've got to take into consideration with our works and our methods that we can preserve the integrity of that grade two listed building. We've employed a specialist in heritage preservation to remove all the identified items that have been identified through the heritage officer that need to be preserved, removed and reinstalled at a later date. So that's been quite an extensive section of work. It took about two and a half months to carry that out to enable us to follow on with the hardcore demolition works once once the heritage items have been removed. What are some of the items? A range. We've got some plaster plaques, we've got marble plaques, we've got... um, timber panelling we had timber floor in the main hall that's that's listed we've got stone balustrades that have been taken out we've got leaded windows we've got an old ticket office that had to be taken out an old victorian lift that was dismantled and will get used in a collage in the in the new builds yeah it was quite an extensive lift about 45 50 items and you found some stuff you weren't expecting to find as well we found some bits and bob yeah we found some old victorian cookers that nobody knew were there that were behind a, a, a studded wall that cookers yeah cast iron original cookers which have become quite a, a prominent find a lot of arches a lot of original stonework that the architects and the heritage officer weren't sure were there but obviously as we've stripped the building back we've uncovered certain items that were kind of not expected i know you kind of mentioned it but lots of things are being put back into the building or recycled right yeah, I mean, the heritage items, they'll, they'll get treated with the respect that they're, they're due and, and put back in their original state. Everything else we remove, there's about 5,000 tonnes of hardcore materials to come out of the project. That all gets taken off-site, crushed and reused as roadstone or in different products. All the metal gets recycled to 100%. And even the general waste, which would be the soft-strip materials, the inert materials, they all go 
it's 100% recycling now, nothing goes to landfill. Is that usual for demolition work or is it just here? No, it's, it's not site-specific at all, no. We do that on every, every project now. And I hear there's some robots. Yeah, we've had a couple of robotic machines here that we're doing the upper terracing. What we look at is mechanicalising all elements of work where we can. Small, they're lightweight, but they're every impact. And we can put them in places where we wouldn't want to put men. There are certain elements of work, especially here where we were up in tight corners where we wouldn't have been able to get a scaffold to that a robotic machine was perfect for the job. That's very cool. Didn't know you use robots for it. Yeah, yeah. What's the reaction been like? Because you must have seen a few people come through here, especially people who work here. Yeah. Shock, I think, <laughs> more than anything. It's a weird feeling coming in here and seeing this because I can't recognise it at all. It looks... I didn't realise that was a lantern over there. It's all just completely different. The biggest thing is really is trying to get your perspective around the fact there's no longer a corridor where there was. There was passageways down the side and we've removed that. The lantern is, feels a lot bigger because obviously we've removed all the inert materials, the false walls, the doors. So it naturally becomes a lot bigger just because of that reason, to be perfectly honest. But the lantern is my favourite area personally I, I can't wait to see that in its new environment I think it'll look fantastic but yeah it, there's a lot to do we're, we're three months in we've probably got about another eight or nine months on site so there's a lot of enabling works for us to get on with the pressure's on to get the building done and get it reopened to obviously bring some revenue back to the music trust Do you ever come back to a place that you've demolished or, or you've kind of you know is going to reopen and see what it looks like? Yeah that I think that's me personally. I like to I like to have a look at what I've done in the past, and I, it's always nice to have a drive by and think, oh, yeah, that looks great. <laughs> well, the guys are about to come back from their break, so we'd better get out of here, I guess. Thank you very much, Will. No problem. Thank you. Now, a demolition site isn't the most suitable place for bands to perform in, which is why Todd, the artistic director, is programming live music all over the city and the region, keeping up the great work when it comes to developing new talent and supporting artists from all over, even though performance space is pretty limited right now. But there is still one space left in the existing Colston Hall, and that's its sparkling foyer. Built 10 years ago in 2009 to provide a continually usable space during this second phase of the transformation. The foyer has a new cafe, Bowl of Plenty, and a stage that's been put to good effect over the last 10 years, hosting sets by the likes of Ronnie Size and the Allergies, numerous local choirs, rollicking free jams during Bristol Jazz and Blues Festival club nights and even charlotte church well i'm here on a drizzly april evening to see ethiopian jazz legend halu mergia live and also to meet emma champion an absolutely colossal gig goer Now, as I mentioned, Emma gives me and all of us a bit of a run for our money when it comes to watching live music. We're here in the Colston Hall foyer, just upstairs, about to watch Halu Mergia. What is it that appealed to you about this gig, Emma? It was different and unusual and a bit weird, and that's the sort of music I really like, the stuff that's on the fringes, on the edges, you know, that's not quite mainstream and standard, is the sort of music I love. So anything that either is difficult to classify by genre or difficult to describe is generally the sort of music that I go, oh, OK, I'll go to that. 
Colston Hall seemed to very much fit with that kind of the kind of artists and the kind of music that I liked being turned on to because it was broad and varied and different. You know, it, it, even in the main hall, it's like you kind of get the the touring artists that are big enough to play Colston Hall, but not enormously like to fill an arena. So it's that real lovely combination. How many gigs do you actually get to? This year I'm not counting properly because there's no goal and last year there wasn't actually a goal but I ended up going to 79. That was sort of by mistake. The year before was sort of where it all started which was that was the year I turned 40 and to celebrate my 40th birthday I decided that I'd go to 40 gigs in the space of the year. I overshot and did 51 and then last year went to 79 which probably this year I've it might end up being as many as 100 if I keep going at the current rate there's no plan where did this love suddenly come from turning 40 gave me the excuse between being 38 and 39 I lost my mum and I had major surgery which I then developed sepsis and it was a life-threatening illness and it was a really difficult time and to come out of that and kind of really want to celebrate being here and being alive and there is nothing that makes me feel more alive than being stood at a gig listening to live music. What was your first impression when you first came to Bristol and you came to see Cosson Hall? When I moved here, it was when the the brand new foyer with a lovely huge glass atrium was brand new. So it was all very shiny and exciting. And I was like, ooh, this is nice. And then walked into the hall and went, ah, like, <laughs> I can see that the money's all gone on the extension and the rest of the hall kind of needs some work. But there's a sort of lovely quaint charm about it that you kind of couldn't help but fall in love with. And I will be the first person in a queue the day that you reopen to hear whoever you've got playing. You're going to be here on day one, but what are you most looking forward to? Because there's going to be new rooms, it's going to look very different. Just all of it, you know, I mean, getting better acoustics in the main hall. So, like, you know, as much as everything I've seen in there has been great, having better acoustics that's designed for kind of modern music will really enhance the experience. And the lantern, which I've always loved, I think is going to be even better. And then, you know, opening up those little small spaces underneath so you can have even more intimate gigs. So the sort of the people that would have been the support acts in the lantern will be able to do their own headline gigs down there. You know, it's like, I'm just looking forward to being able to come back, really. Emma, you're my gig hero. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. And please hurry up and finish the reefer. (laughs) Well, I have to agree with Emma. I miss Colston Hall's main hall and I miss the lantern. And to see it being demolished recently, that's really emotional feeling especially when you've seen all these amazing artists performing there and you walk in the room and there's diggers in there but you know that it's going to reopen and it's going to look absolutely amazing and it's going to sound absolutely amazing and of course we've still got the foyer area putting on awesome live acts throughout the year and Bristol venues supporting Colston Hall Presents gigs too so there's still lots of gigs to get along to check them all out on the Colston Hall website. I'm Harriet Robinson and thank you very much for listening. To hear other podcasts in this series and to find out more about the transformation, please do visit colstonhall.org slash transform the hall.